FX medicine is evolving. As we continue to grow, it's important to us that we remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert you want to hear from, let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Instagram. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us again today is Georgia Marion, who's a naturopath and nutritionist with 15 years clinical experience and who specialises in women's health, particularly hormone imbalances, fertility issues and postpartum support. Today we'll be discussing the histamine, oestrogen and cortisol link. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Georgia. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's delve into your mind straight off. <laughs> let's firstly recap on histamine intolerance, because this is something that I still get confused about. This is a, this is a, a, a normal functioning compound which we require to adequately respond to danger signals. Yes. How do we get intolerant to it? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess histamine, obviously, as you said, it's really important for lots of things in the body, like your immune system, and it has a role, big role to play in inflammation, but it's also involved in digestion and boosting exercise performance and increasing attention, as well as getting nutrients and oxygen delivered to different parts of the body, right? So, and obviously the problem occurs, as with anything with the body, is when there's too much histamine and when your histamine levels increase, your tolerance decreases, if you like. So, and that is where you get a lot of the symptoms and what symptoms you get depends upon a lot of things, including where it's released in the body. So, but that needs to be differentiated a little bit from the um, mast cell um, activation syndrome. Right. And they tend to be confused because the symptoms can be similar and someone can have, either or they can have both <laughs> right and so yeah simplifies it thanks for that this is the first question right so <laughs> so essentially the difference really is is where mast cells in mcas is where mast cells don't just release histamine histamine intolerance is where they're releasing too much histamine i think for one reason or another whereas mcas is where they're releasing histamine along with hundreds of other substances essentially a lot of inflammation and inflammatory mediators yeah and so and the symptoms can be can be quite similar to that so i guess why people become histamine intolerant or mcas you know it it varies (laughs) because there can be lots of different things that can lead to it or bring it on really okay so we we gave a hint in the title and that was estrogen so how does histamine intolerance or histamine intolerance affect women 
Yeah, okay. So before we answer that, just to speak broadly about, so too much histamine, so when we're talking about histamine intolerance, that, that can be, you know, speaking broadly, obviously it can be brought on by external substances like things that we eat or things that we're exposed to. So like your pollen and your dust mites or your heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate and that sort of thing. Internal processes like your gut health or intestinal microbiome, eating too much histamine containing foods or foods that uh, stimulate the body to produce too much histamine uh, and difficulty clearing it um, can also contribute it for one reason or another mm -hmm. and then nutrient deficiencies but then hormone imbalances as you said can be a significant cause of histamine intolerance and that's where really it comes in with females particularly because when you talk about females in relation to this there are differences generally but in immune responses between males and females you know in clones like such as antibody production and cell mediated t-cell counts and responses of that type of thing and so these things are influenced by your sex hormones you know so generally speaking estrogen tends to be immune enhancing mm -hmm. and both estrogen and progesterone tend to enhance type 1 and suppress type 2 responses in females right and obviously that's everything being in balance <laughs> and so when, mast cell when you're talking type 2 response you're talking to help us yeah that's right yeah yeah so and so it then follows from there is that mast cell reactivity and histamine concentrations are also different between males and females largely because of you know this hormone picture that we have going on depending on where a woman is at hormonally and in terms of her life stage and her hormonal health so many of the conditions that are attributed to mast cell activity commonly more commonly occur in females <laughs> you know so which we can go into and this is interesting because i think it's large for lots of reasons but histamine is present in most tissues including the hypothalamus where in the brain mast cells are at the highest concentrations around the hypothalamus and obviously the hypothalamus is closely involved in you know all of your sex hormones so you can see even just on the outset how that how that occurs and how that can really how you can see how it affects females more if that do you know what i mean so yeah. you know well, not just more but also at different times of their cycle and different times yeah. of life absolutely and so because estrogen increases histamine partly by down regulating dao which which helps break down histamine okay. what's his dao please sorry Diamine oxidase. <laughs> um, there's a test at the end. <laughs> and histamine causes the ovaries to make more estrogen. So it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. And women become, as you said, more vulnerable to hormone associated histamine intolerance symptoms when estrogen is high, you know, so leaning into ovulation and during perimenopause and just before menstruation. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you can, so you see that um clinically you know it can also be seen say where allergies in which histamine is obviously closely involved it's more prevalent in women with hormonal imbalance related conditions like endometriosis you know um or say when women are pregnant <laughs> do you know sometimes they can have an alleviation or an improvement in the yeah. allergic type symptoms do you yeah. know i was thinking um, inflammatory symptoms as well yeah, that's right. And so hormonal associated fluctuations in asthma uh, tend to be more prevalent in women of reproductive age compared to say post-menopausal women, right? So, um, and 
administration of antihistamine medication, it can influence your thyroid hormone levels. So, you know, you can really see how it can get a little bit complicated with it's not just a simple high histamine and that's yeah. it. So you I'm going to interject here, everybody. <laughs> this is how complicated George's mind gets. <laughs> but I, lo I love, like, when you're talking, I can see your cogs churning around and I can see you joining dots and bringing in different systems and concepts and biochemical processes that are going on. It's such a great thing to watch, I've got to say. I've got to say. <laughs> Well, I just think anyone in the area of clinic would be the same in terms of you're not, and this is at the industry that we're in, you're not treating people just based on, I mean, there might be a particular focus depending on what their, their health priorities are and what's going on with them. Like you might be focusing a particular organ or system, but you know, you're not treating them just by this. So you need to be thinking about how all these things are connected to a greater or lesser degree. Absolutely. I think that's kind of, and that's why I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. That, that's it. It's like, okay, so there's high histamine. Yeah, okay. So high histamine, obviously they need to be consuming less histamine, but then why do they have high histamine? And how is that really throwing everything else out of balance? Do you know? So I think, yeah. But you do <laughs> make a very important point there about consuming too much histamine. There's a, you know, a big groundswell about fermented foods. But for those people that have an intolerance, they, they really got to be careful about what they're doing here. Yeah, they really do. That's right. So, so for people who have, you know, and we can touch on this a little bit more later, but people who have, say, just histamine intolerance for, you know, just say just histamine intolerance as opposed mm. to MCAS, having a low histamine diet will tend to improve symptoms pretty significantly and fairly quickly. Um, whereas if someone has MCAS, it would tend, you have to really look at, you know, it's a more complex process because there's lots of different triggers as to um, like the root causes that are underlying it. So, um, so, but yeah, I agree is that, and I think that always comes back to say like the fermented foods, obviously they can be amazing for a lot of people, yeah. but there's never a one size fits all dietary approach, including fermented foods. There are other ways also to help support. And I'm a big fan of fermented foods for the right people, but you know. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> you this, it's this broad brush stroke, you know, it's, yeah. it's healthy. It can be, but it isn't always. <laughs> it's healthy with the right, in the right system and the right person, yeah. you know, if they process it and absorb it and metabolize it and how their body responds to it. So, um, yeah, so, um, but luckily there's lots of different ways to improve your gut health. So I'm now going to ask that other question. How does histamine intolerance yeah. particularly so, affect females? So... Um, okay, so to understand that, then we need to be looking at um, how, how they affect each other, right? So estrogen and progesterone receptors, they're both present on mast cells. Mm -hmm. And histamine in female reproduct sorry, reproductive tissue is derived from uterine and ovarian epithelium and mast cells, as well as other types of cells. So functionally, this is kind of where you see, like we were talking about before, and for anyone that um, actually could read my words on the diagram, <laughs> the relationship between histamine and steroid hormones is bidirectional, right? So histamine plays a key role in ovulation and female reproduction. Um, it stimulates the ovaries to produce more estrogen by promoting the release of LH, which is obviously needed for ovulation. And histamine induces dose-dependent, and that's relevant, estradiol synthesis through activation of one of the types of histamine 
um, receptors, your H1. So it can have an additive effect on endogenous estrogen levels. So you can even see just with that. So obviously you're automatically thinking when there's abnormal levels or um, excessive levels for want of a bit of a term of estrogen compared to progesterone and where this is coming in and you can, and they kind of feed back on each other. And so the cycle can tend to go. So um, I'm going to draw another box in there as well. <laughs> so I told you it wasn't fixed. Well, well you've so, got H1 and H2 as well. So you've got yeah, digestive yeah, issues. Yeah in different tissues right and estrogen yeah. also has a prohistamine effect so um and then you look at the menstrual cycle so during a menstrual cycle obviously there's you know all things being in balance there's a characteristic hormonal pattern that happens with your lh and fsh as well as your estrogen and progesterone and there are cyclic variations in the endometrium immune cells such as your natural killer cells in the secretory phase there's an increase in neutrophils at the start of the menstrual tissue uh, breakdown phase and there's a significant numbers of macrophages in terms of that's relevant in terms of our menstrual cycle is affecting you know is influencing our immune cells within obviously systemically but particularly in our reproductive organs <laughs> and it's really interesting as well because endometrial so when you're talking about mast cells endometrial mast cells numbers don't seem to fluctuate through much throughout the menstrual cycle, but the de degranulation of histamine does appear to fluctuate with menstrual hormone secretions, if that makes sense. So do, do, and you, this know, do you know what I'm pondering is I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if this might be a possible link or explanation for those people that think that endometriosis has an autoimmune factor maybe this might be that link between the inflammatory situation that's going on with endometriosis, the hormonal drivers of it, and the mm. histaminergic actions on inflammatory mediators. Yeah, and I think, you know, endometriosis says it's a complicated condition, um, but it's an immune-mediated condition. There's a Leia Heckman question. <laughs> so... As far as the particular uh, cell drivers for it and, you know, what comes first and do you know what I mean? Obviously, that all still needs to be elucidated, but um, possibly, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think I find that interesting. I think I, it, I need it, to get Leah Heckman, Donna Chicha and Lara Bryden on a panel. Yes. So, you know, in terms of how then when you're looking at um, how it presents clinically, you know, obviously we need we need to touch on, you know, thyroid and cortisol, but when you're looking at um, how this can present clinically, so obviously it can vary depending on where someone, a woman is at, if she's premenopausal or if she's perimenopausal. Um, and with, say, premenopausal women, it's particularly relevant in women who, present, who obviously present clinically with your low progesterone and elevated estrogen relative to each other in terms of the histamine stimulating effect of estrogen and progesterone tends to have a more inhibiting effect on histamine. So you can see, um, you know, how, how when things are out of balance that can contribute to things, what we we're talking about before. So they can tend to um, have more severe symptoms when your estrogen is high. So during ovulation, just prior to menstruation, as we said before, so heavy menstrual flow, it can cause, you know, period pain to be much worse and, mm. or, you know, or, point of dysmenorrhea and other sort of PMS type symptoms to be worse like PMS and brain fog and headaches and anxiety and, and bloating and insomnia depending on how it's presenting for wow. someone it, 
yeah, it can also contribute to ovarian cysts because of the inflammatory mm. process that's happening, right? Um, you know, migraines, particularly and premenstrual migraines, you know, so that, that, that could be pretty common, you know, as well. Menstrual, um, menstrual migraines and non-migraine headaches as well, um, partly to do with inflammation and muscle tension, along with other types of things. And then you can look at, it can also be associated with things like interstitial cystitis because, of, you know, there's chronic inflammation of mm -hmm. the bladder wall. Um, and so that can, activation of mast cells is a, is a key player in that process. So, um, and there's overexpression of mast cells in the bladder, right? So obviously in histamine producing bacteria as well so and then it can also be oh, seen obviously it's not the only factor because obviously there's other metabolic factor driving it with pcos you know and this is more to do with the estrogen dominance and low progesterone thing again that you know we've been talking about and it can it can trigger the production of histamine from your mast cells and so essentially it can be one reason behind pcos symptoms right um, you know driven by your estrogen so right uh, what when you were talking about histamine producing bacteria, which yeah. genera, sorry, um, are more prevalent at doing this? Oh, I'm going to have to get back to you. Like on Proteus that or E. coli, or I is have it a feeling UTI uh, bugs, or is it other ones involved in interstitial cystitis? That with I know I'm pretty sure E. coli is one of the ones that's pretty significantly involved, and I think um, say um staph uh, s aureus can also be involved as well are the ones that are and they're also things obviously things like parasites certain parasites right. can also do things that sort of stuff so as with anything with the gut i don't think that's the whole picture but yeah so um that was some of the so that'd be that interesting are. to delve into why they do that like what's their function for doing that is it is it the the way that they attach to walls or or you yeah. know create a biofilm or something like that yeah, that, I mean, again, that's probably a question for someone with uh, more microbiology. You've got 10 seconds to answer me. <laughs> <laughs> this very broad topic. <laughs> answer this. <laughs> Immunology, go. <laughs> so, you know, and so when we're talking about premenopausal women, endometriosis before, like we sort of mentioned, there's mm. associated high numbers of activated mast cells, which increase in response to stress, which exacerbates the condition. So potentially not the whole story, but definitely not helping the picture when there's inflammation and there's, um, there's dysregulated immunity going on in these sort of areas. And so histamine intolerance and these types of, and so MCAS are more also common in women with gut issues like IBS and IBD and celiac disease and SIBO and that type of thing. So yeah that's it right exactly so and then you go so with perimenopausal women obviously the fluctuating hormone picture is where it goes, i guess it's really really comes about so their symptoms tend to be more severe during during you know things like brain fog and hives and nasal congestion and if they had previously existing allergies you know the allergies can feel like they're getting worse and then you add in the impact of you know cortisol and the adrenals and then also gut health in terms of metabolizing your estrogen how how that is so um and so that's where it can that can help present for, for for those types of women and then with postmenopausal women probably to be obviously their hormonal picture is not really contributing as much mm. as perimenopausal women but so if they're on hrt you know they might for example my next have, question 
Yeah, I was going to say that, that, you know, there can be, say, a higher risk of or incidence of new onset asthma when they previously haven't had it before when, um, when they're taking HRT. So, um, yeah, so I think it can really affect women at any life stage, just depending on, um, say, how much of it is hormonally driven and how much are the other, other processes, con- excuse me, contributing to it. Is there any data on uh, the oral contraceptive pills and the progestogens, their actions on uh, or interactions with histamine? Well, progesterone is... Progestogens. Progestogens. See, this is the thing. I would, uh, I mean, progesterone, to be honest, I'd have to look into that side a little bit more, but progesterone is one of the processes and encouraging it, um, its production through obviously ovulation. And, but if it's needed to be, taking micronized progesterone as part of the process if hormones imbalances are driving a lot of these histamine type symptoms. So uh, given that progesterone has, you know, histamine inhibiting effects, uh, I would be, I mean, I would be thinking that progestins don't have the same effect because it's not the same thing (laughs) in, you know. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's, you, you change one stick on that molecule and it's not the same action. Yeah, that's it. So I wouldn't have thought that it would have the same effect in terms yeah. of the... interesting to look into. Um, so what about the effects of thyroid? You mentioned it before. Now I can see this as a huge player. Yeah, yeah. So with thyroid is really interesting. And this is one of the areas I think that so many researchers are only just really coming out about it in terms of, you know, the effect of it. It's an, and it seems to be, from what they understand so far, it's twofold because... Uh, T3 effects can be modulated by mast cells and mast cells can modulate thyroid function. <laughs> so histamine in mast yeah, this is another one of those cycles. So histamine in mast cells can be secreted together with other mediators, including thyroid hormones, so TSH and T3. So mast cells, they express T3 receptors and they can store T store T3. So we talked about the hypothalamus before in terms of there's a high concentration of mast cells in the brain around the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus can stimulate, you know, your mast cells and T3, which is stored along with histamine in mast cell granules, or it can be broken down into T3 metabolites. And these metabolites can trigger mast cell degranulation, releasing T3 and histamine, (laughs) you know? So, and so that can mediate, you know a lot of the i guess the classical type of symptoms that you know you, you associate with histamine like pain yeah. and effects and that sort of thing but mm. histamine can also activate tsh receptors and can control the release of tsh so it has a possible role in thyroxine regulation which then yeah. begs the question having high histamine does it will that then have an effect on thyroid medication i'll be surprised if it didn't you know because well, of that what about Hashimoto's? What about, you know, clinical hypothyroidism? Right. So the clinical relevance here is, you know, for, to be looking at at least, is that because of the ability of mast cells to modulate thyroid function, this is potentially re- relevant in things like early stage thyroiditis because it's an inflammatory process as well as inflammatory intestinal diseases like we mentioned before and Hashimoto's mm. thyroiditis. Mm. But as particularly if you've got someone with Hashimoto's with the, with particular skin presentations like your chronic urticaria and alopecia and atopic dermatitis, you'd definitely be looking at, you know, that as a, as a comorbidity, you know, Graves' disease and non-thyroidal uh, illness, <laughs> 
you know, because changes in, in this HPT axis in patients suffering from these types of illnesses that are yeah. not originating in the thyroid, right, which is what that is. So characterised by a particular hormone pattern. And then we'd also be looking at this for bacterial-induced um, hypothyroidism, do you know? So, um, so I think there's more to come with the impact, the, like this interaction between mm -hmm. mast cells and thyroid and how that all sort of... Because uh, also with... They've also seen that thyroid... Um, antibodies can cause mast cell activation and degranulation. So, you know, obviously, which is where the Hashimoto's link comes in. So, um, I, I wonder if the orthodox allergy clinics are looking at this. I mean, this is just so far ranging the effects of an allergy or an intolerance. Now, you know, like allergy clinics are very pretty cut and dried with what they call an allergy and an intolerance. But, mm. I mean, if this could open up a whole world of consideration or reconsideration of what was marked to be that and may indeed be influenced by histamine. Well, this is right because everyone is, so we're talking about females here, but say if, if a female has MCAS and there's a whole list of triggers mm. and root causes for that. Yeah. So generally there would be multiple ones and and then when there's multiple triggers, there's likely to be multiple clinical presentations for that that are beyond the classic, you know, they have skin issues or yeah. do you know what I mean? Or they react immediately after having a particular food that's high in histamine. So yeah. I think uh, I'm glad that there's becoming more an awareness, like so obviously I specialise in women's health, like to do with, you know, women and histamine and how this affects because it can have a pretty significant on a women's on a woman's quality of life, you know, when she's experiencing histamine related issues in relation to hormone imbalances. Yeah. But I think there's a lot more to come in terms of how this is all oh, yeah. interacting. Because then you look at, you know, the the role of stress <laughs> and cortisol in this interaction, which Absolutely. is really interesting. Because stress and adrenal dysfunction are one of the main drivers of histamine intolerance. Mm. And when you're thinking about stress, you've got to be thinking more broadly than just psychological stress. Obviously, that's that's a factor. Awesome. Because yeah, that's it. Because human mast cells release more CRH, you know, so than the brain does, <laughs> which is interesting. And mast cells obviously have a very strong affinity for CRH. Trophic so, releasing hormone. That's it. So mast cells are <laughs> activated so then you get your crh released and that then acts back on mast cells so then essentially your mast cells are more susceptible to stress and i think this is particularly the case with mcas where mm. they may not be releasing histamine but they're more responsive to stress so then and stress can then be you know chronic stress so it can be anything obviously you know the sort of psychological stress yeah. to nutritional status and heavy metals and pesticides and molds and, and infections and infections and makeup you know particular compounds and makeup Ooh. so you know if women <laughs> and then there's nervous system imbalances that women can present with so difficulty handling stress and relaxing and getting enough sleep and these are all really common clinical presentations for women that i see and a lot of women see feeling wired after being around people too much and talking too much. And then also things like chronic infections and reactions mm. to food, startling easily, things like that. And also, also if they've, you know, when you're doing a clinical case on someone, if in the last few years they've had major life stresses happening, such as, you know, divorce or job change and that sort of thing, because yeah. and where this is coming from, because cortisol obviously has an effect on mast cells and, 
and that can release inflammatory chemicals, which then releases more cortisol, which then releases more mast cells, and that can trigger your symptoms. So even just stress alone. So we're talking about thyroid and cortisol, <laughs> you know. So I think that's where, and this is where I see. So with a lot of women with these types of this type of presentation, obviously there's all different things to consider, but you know, hormone balances and stress and thyroid are often playing and gut health are often playing a pretty significant role in how this is how this is presenting. It's usually not always just histamine tolerance is a standalone. They're having too much histamine in the diet and that is it. So I'm just pondering this again, and that is uh, the you've got a glass of water there. So here's a good analogy. In some instances, you reach a, a very small threshold and you get a full initiation, heart muscle initiation, that, that electrical impulse. It, it reaches a threshold and you get a heartbeat. In other situations, for instance, immunity, um, allergy is one where you get, you've got like a glass of water and you have a, you know, a sip of genetics and a, a sip of dust mite and a sip of cold um, air and you know a sip of something else and suddenly you've overflowed and you get the allergic symptoms so when we're talking about stressors Mm. is this a case where you can work on actually first identify which stressors are the major culprits in initiation of a histamine intolerance and then do you stratify or strategize to say, let's work on this one first, that one second? Yeah, so I guess probably the first thing, I mean, probably the easiest place to start is putting someone on a low histamine diet because right. if it is just, in a, you know... That's the biggest. Broadly, if that is... If it's if it's mainly histamine intolerance, yep. well, then that's going to produce pretty significant effects. And if it's MCIS, it will still help. So either way, you're going to get an improvement in someone's clinical presentation initially, which is what they want. How quick do you find effects and how good do you find compliance? Uh, We'll see. This is the thing with histamine intolerant and foods is that often there can be a bit of misinformation out there about what actually constitutes high histamine Uh foods. And if someone has... Um, so obviously there are ones that we definitely know. So like, you know, your fermented foods and certain types of, you know, your old aged foods and fermented alcohol and oh, artificial, all that sort of thing, artificial additives and that type of thing. But then if someone has, say, um, say MCAS or histamine intolerance, this, uh, either of those or a combination of those, mm-hmm. they might also be reacting to things like lectins or oxalates or salicylates or FODMAPs. So then, you know, <laughs> so if so, if it was just histamine intolerance, you can get pretty quick. <laughs> Someone has MCAS, you know, you'd probably get some improvement, but I wouldn't, not, not significant and not, quickly necessary like there'd be some alleviation of symptoms but there's probably other intolerances or things that the body is reacting to food wise so it's a matter of unpacking those and then going further how well then do you find the um instigation of emotional support um yes because we know that you know naturopathic practitioners have such a one of the reasons they have such a great um reputation is because they the patient feels heard and this is vastly different from the eight minute medicare you know australia 
um, consultation that doctors are working in the, in, in the little mouse treadmill on. Um, so it's almost like naturopaths have this um, beautiful arena to actually allow the patient to express all of their anxieties. And that in just in itself may be a major uh, de-stressor. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree because by the time I think a lot of other naturopaths would agree is that by the time they've come to see us, usually they've been through a fair few different yep. types of modalities yep. and may not feel like they've been, not in all cases, but may not feel like they've been listened to or they've been really, their particular issues haven't been addressed. And if it was, all well, that, they probably wouldn't come to us. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So mm -hmm. A lot of naturopaths tend to see people when they're at a certain point of being a little bit at the end of their tether. <laughs> so if you're at that stage and you go to see someone then and they're actually listening and delving in deep and asking all the questions and all the things you do as a clinician, do you know, I agree that you, they do tend to feel that sense of, oh, someone's actually listening to me and that they're not just carrying this bag of health issues on their own. They can sort of share that load a bit. So with someone who understands and cares about them being able to get where they want to be with their health. So I think, I think definitely, particularly if it's MCAS, I think you need to be, and if there's hormone imbalance issues to do with it, addressing stress and all and nervous system imbalances has to be along with the dietary approach that we spoke about. So reducing mm. intake of foods and exposure for at least four weeks, you know, to see if you're going to get an effect or not, um, is we're really looking at stress and it's like you know because stress activates your mast cells as we sort of spoke about so supporting the hpa axis you know so you know addressing actual what is the cause of someone's actual stress mm. you know really looking at at that and someone being honest having coming to an awareness about that and looking at how they can alleviate that you know taking and particularly you know and i put my hand up here as well taking regular time to yourself to do things that you enjoy ah. to <laughs> why women might be more affected than males. Oh, I don't know. That's a, yeah. <laughs> Possibly someone needs I'm to do green. a really study to confirm that. Okay. Um, how quick an effect? You said four weeks. How quick an effect and how great an effect do you find just dietary modulation has on symptoms? Well, I think that sort of comes back to when it's just histamine intolerance, it's pretty quick. But you'll be doing the four weeks just to, because obviously it depends on how, how long someone's had this for yeah. and therefore what else what else what else the high histamine might be affecting you know in the body mm. so um and bringing that back to a certain amount of a baseline so to speak so um so when you're looking at this then the stress so then you're adding in the other things as well we've spoken about like so with stress so sleep is a big one for women so addressing why someone is not sleeping whether it is stress or whether it's allergies and food intolerances or yeah. whether it's gut and it's interesting to do with sleep because the brain releases, I think, the highest amount of histamine at about three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, so if you can So imagine, women should wake up at three. Well, if women are waking up regularly at three and it's not related I'm to get kids. Shot for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, being being so, like with stress, and then they might have toxicity and they might have gut issues and then they've got hormone imbalance. So it's no wonder that a lot of women don't get very effective sleep. <laughs> Do you know? at that dressing it why they're not sleeping do they have the right nutrient support to be able to sleep in terms of are they having enough protein now what are they eating before during the day and before bed as far as what they're eating enough of or what they're not eating enough of do you know 
what I mean. So, and then just, I, just I on that, on eating enough, mm -hmm. do you find that the the histamine intolerance, kind of like mm -hmm. the food intolerances that we see, I'm always at a quandary with this, in a quandary, and that is the notion that you either avoid or crave things that you either need or are um, intolerant to. You know how people talk yeah. about people crave the things that they're intolerant to, but then on another, in another sentence, other people will say that you crave the things that you need. And I'm like, well, do you need it because you're intolerant to it, but it's setting up a, um, a crutch? Mm, I, think, I think that's a bit of a mixed bag of a response because I think in some cases, you know, because our relationship with food, especially when there's stress involved, is complicated. And so in our minds, if we really feel like that chocolate, we can justify anything that that's a craving. And um, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I can. <You> know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You can justify anything to do with food, really. <laughs> Let's be whereas, positive here. I do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's it. So whereas for in other cases, it might actually be, say, like, you know, a woman, a woman might not be having enough protein sort of thing. So they're really feeling like they need to have, say, more if they're iron deficient, they're like feeling like they really need to have more meat or that sort of thing. So I think in some cases it can be driving an actual area where nutrients are out of balance, but not, not always. So um, I think you need to sort of, sort of take that with a little bit of a grain of salt and be looking at clinically okay if someone's craving certain foods or what's driving that and what's that about so um before you're saying yep yeah, well they're craving chocolate so therefore they must eat that all the time <laughs> to get all together on the antioxidants in their diet so yeah. <laughs> um, are there any clues to presentation that you can give us um you spoke about anxiety for instance and it's like well what condition doesn't present with anxiety you know, heart yeah. disease, autoimmune disease, pregnancy, infertility, uh, methylation issues, depression. <laughs> Where do you stop? Yeah. So are there, any, are there any clues that you go, wait a minute, I should be going this track? Uh, hmm. <laughs> How long's a piece of string? This is one of those questions. <laughs> I want that on this diagram, Georgia. <laughs> It's only a one-page diagram. It's not a journal. So. <laughs> so I think in regards to clues, I think, first of all, you need to be considering where a woman is at in terms of her hormonal life. You know, is she premenopausal? Is she perimenopausal? Or is she postmenopausal? And, so the, and then obviously then you're looking at, okay, let's look at the easy stuff first. Is it that she's just having too much histamine for one reason or another and reducing that? And does that make a difference? And then clinic, so and then clinically from there. So in terms, so I think once you narrow those things down, then you can start looking at okay, particular clues as far as okay, if a woman is, you know, experiencing all your classic estrogen, progesterone, sort of histamine, you know, type of symptoms that we spoke about before, well, then obviously you're going to go, you know, clinically down that track is going to be your focus type thing. So, um, but if, if someone, if a woman is experiencing that kind of thing, there's always going to be stress and often adrenal um, and thyroid along with that as well. And usually you've got to address gut as well. So um, I'm not sure if I've answered the question quite as clearly because it's not, well, it's, it's to me, it's really interesting. Like you, listening to Datis Karazian in, at the, in yeah. the Biocytical Symposium, and it was, you got the notion that the thyroid was the master of everything. And we know that it runs, regulates the rate and rhythm of every cell in the body. We get it. 
but what he was alluding to is that it's the master um, culprit and target for a lot of autoimmune conditions. And if mm. you can settle that down, that you settle everything else down. I've spoken yeah. to people in the past, integrative doctors in, you know, old eras, you know, over mm. a decade ago where it was cortisol, everything was cortisol. Cortisol was the, the panacea for everything. And it was a very wise Andrew Heyman that said, hang on, if you've got a latent infection and you don't know about it, you give somebody cortisol, what are you going to do there? You're yeah, not going to kill right. the bug. You're just going to kill mm -hmm. the symptoms. Yeah. So it was a real awakening for many people in that room. Um, so I, I'm, I'm wondering whether, I think it goes back to the old, you know, stress management being heard. Um, and um and dietary manipulation so yeah so generally the process i would take is obviously look like we mentioned looking at your dietary approach so like you know looking at your histamine foods how much are they having all of that sort of stuff addressing that minimizing that reducing exposure depending on how some responds to that to other things they potentially might be you know be um triggered by like your lectins oxalates salicylates fodmaps that type mm, of thing mm. and then adding in you know the, the nutritionally dense whole food kind of approach to making sure they're getting out enough of the nutrients to support all of these processes that can be affected when there's histamine intolerance and mcas you know so like with your you know your vegetables and your protein um you know your good quality whole food protein and your fats yeah. and that type of thing and just being being careful with carbohydrates so some some and people can be triggered inflammation can be triggered by grains and so that's not going to work for them and then particular you know tips like avoiding slow cooking because that can increase histamine foods like if you are going to have leftovers freeze them because unless you're going to eat them within a few hours that can increase histamine foods things like that right. and then you'll be looking at you know improving the body's capacity to clear histamine so you know things like b6 and vitamin c and equocetin and you know and then beyond that supporting progesterone production and that's you know because that has an antihistamine or in histamine med, um, mediating effect, if you like. So then that's kind of where tying and where you're looking at, you know, your estrogen and hormone balancing and what's going on with that. Where is that at? You know, reducing. And so if you're supporting progesterone, like reducing inflammation with your dairy and your gluten and your sugar type of approach, addressing, like you said, thyroid. <laughs> and, you know, if there's blood sugar imbalances, particularly eating enough of the macronutrients that we sort of, you know, mm -hmm. that we talk a lot about with women and having enough of certain nutrients like you know your zinc and your iodine and your magnesium and selenium right and then with your estrogen improving your estrogen metabolism with your microbiome and gut support you know looking at what medications are they eating you know are they eating a lot of sugar and wheat um is alcohol something that's that's high in their diet a stress we spoke about uh, sleep we spoke about do they need digestive enzymes to support this process and then liver support things like an acetylcysteine and liposomal glutathione and then your herbs like you know your milk thistle and your turmeric that type of thing um, and then addressing inflammation obviously because that affects estrogen detoxification and then adding in nutrients in there and then you'd be looking at you know, looking at your stress, like we spoke about, you know, before stress and sorry, your thyroid adrenal kind of processes mm -hmm. and what's happening there. And then your parasympathetic nervous system as well. So that's generally the sort of process that I would follow. And then if, and obviously then beyond that, you know, you'd be looking at <clears throat> things like, you know, uh, say if it's say 
traumas or significant health treat not like um emotional triggers from the past or present sort of thing that are driving right. this or is it is is it things like uh mold you know <laughs> and then going down that These rabbit hole so and so it's always a matter of as with anything is helping someone symptomatically in terms of because then that can help them keep going with your treatment process if you're mm. helping them with their symptoms as quick as you're able to without inhibiting the process of addressing why they're getting it and then working on those things at along with that, you know, so, um, yeah. and, and um, then going further down the rabbit hole if you need to, as depending on what their clinical presentation is. What about dosages like quercetin? Um, I, you know, I've used it as a, an antihistamine and yeah. I've had to take exceedingly high dosages to get any sort of real effect. Um, I've drunk Bicol skull cap in years gone by. I wouldn't, I would not recommend that. It's like hazelnuts times 10,000 and that woodiness. Um, I am a bit weird though in, I am weird. Um, in that I was drinking it straight, (laughs) but I was drinking it straight and, and this was a full blown rhinorrhea. Like this was just snot fest. And watery eyes and, you know, the whole symptomatology of an acute um, um, histamine release. And, um, and I remember it was ex- it really quick, but I, had, I was drinking it like I would never be able to recommend this for patients. So what sort of clinical dosages do you use and what sort of tricks can you give us as to what you mix together and which way you address it? Uh, with quercetin, again, it's one of those things people either respond to it and they respond to it well, or they or they won't. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, so I'll probably tend to use a dose of about five hundred milligrams a day because you've got to be careful with too many phenols. You right. Know? So, right. and also with uh, supplements, um, you know, you're only going to get that dose with supplements. So just making sure it's not derived from peanut shells or fava beans because if someone if someone might react to that, mm-hmm. sometimes it can be sourced from that. Uh, so. Yeah, and also with any supplements, you've also got to be careful with any sort of additives and stuff that are in there because for some people, particularly it's in MCAS, this can, you know, trigger trigger some of what they're presenting with. So, um, so beyond the dietary spoke that we spoke, so dosages wise, so with B6, I'd be looking at, so when we're talking about histamine clearing effects, generally use up 50 milligrams twice daily is the sort of dose that I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, with vitamin C, I think you can sort of go below bowel tolerance, obviously, with someone, and that can be quite different for everyone with what it'll be. So, but vitamin C is one of those ones you can't really go too far wrong with it beyond bowel, <laughs> bowel sort of issues. So, you'll know. Um, yeah, yeah, you'll definitely know. It's like if you have to take too many probiotics, it's like it's, it's no guesswork. <laughs> sort of there. Um, and then, so with things like your, um, you know, so with your hormone support, like we were talking about for so magnesium glycinate, I'd be looking at 300 milligrams a day and selenium, you know, about 150 micrograms a day, that kind of dosage. If you're using N-acetylcysteine, which is fantastic for a lot of different parts of this process, you know, it depends upon the person, but at least 500 to 2000 milligrams a day, depending on how someone can tolerate it with your liposomal glutathione would be looking between one and 400 sort of milligrams a day really i guess they're the kind of doses that i would tend to use so um and then so with d3 obviously it's an anti-allergic and that this can be um it can have an effect and it can tend to be low 
with people with these types of issues. So you'd be starting it. I mean, obviously you're testing for it to see how low they are. And if someone has say um, Hashimoto's, you know, thyroid issues, well, they can tend to have a lot of issues with when they take vitamin D and getting their levels up because they tend to have SNPs, you know, with vitamin D. So you'd be starting at 2000 IU and obviously monitoring what they're, what their results are so um, mm. with vitamin D. So they're the sort of dosage I would tend to use. Uh, can I, can I just interject, sorry, can I just make a point about vitamin D and testing? Um, yes. We did waste millions and millions of dollars in the, of, of Australian healthcare dollars. And we mm. certainly can't afford this in the new era of COVID-19. We just simply can't afford it. Even though it's been taken off the, um, the, the um, NHS as a screening tool, it, yeah. So it's basically user pays. Having said that, mm. it's a cheap test. So there's two, there's two ways of thinking about this. There's one way is Professor Michael Hollick says, there's, it's pointless testing. It's a waste of money. Simply supplement. That's it. It's so cheap, the cost of the supplement outweighs any cost of the testing. It's so safe. Mm. You know, if you go three to 5,000 units and uh, um, three to five times that for obese people and, you know, certain medications like steroids and, and uh, what was it, anti-seizure medication, there, there was a few medications, um, anti-HIV medication um, that you need to increase the dose for. Just dose. So there's his way. And the other way is, as you're saying, which is probably in certain sensitive patient populations, you might go... No, I need to get a baseline. But yeah, I think it depends think upon the person. It depends on like D wouldn't be the first thing, and all of this going on, it wouldn't be the first thing I would test for. Right. But there. if someone can say like it wouldn't be the first thing, but it would just be a consideration mm. um, in terms of. And if someone presented with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you know, the first thing you're thinking of is you know, they don't. More often than not, they don't tend to respond well to vitamin D, particularly at the more say two. Right. Sort of IU, so yeah. that's where you're probably looking at. Okay, well then you probably want to test to see what their baseline is, because then you're probably wanting to go more significant doses and just seeing what doses actually they they are responding to. Do you know? So um, yeah, so I think yeah, wouldn't be the, the other person. the other point I was going to say about vitamin D testing is just know that the test you take today is really uh, representing the vitamin D intake from three odd months ago, because there's this lag, and so just yeah. be aware of when you take it during seasons. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, it'd be more, I mean, to me, it's more appropriate to be doing someone, yeah, like this time of year during during winter to see what their actual levels actually are. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, I'd be taking it early spring and then you'll get an idea of how low they were in winter. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, hmm, so. yeah. Okay. What other sort of things can you, what other clues and tips can you give us with regards to management? And even caveats, what do we have to be careful of? Um, Datis Karazin was extraordinarily um, conservative with his iodine dosing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, iodine is where you'd be looking more at, you know, where there's the hormone imbalance side of things. And, you know, you tend to, yeah, again, I would, I would tend to agree with him as far as being somewhat conservative with iodine because, mm. you know, it's pretty widespread now in terms of food and, from, and um, not fermented foods and um, in the foods that it's added to fortified foods yeah. yeah so you know so and i think and it's one of those things you've got to be careful with because when there's too much of it it can certainly cause a lot of issues having so, said that you know it was the first vitamin supplement rather than fortified yeah. foods 
it was the first supplement which was uh, encouraged in guidelines. I think it was January 2010 for all pregnant women to receive a supplement of iodine of 150 micrograms because mm. diet alone could not make up the difference for the for the lack of iodine in our in our diet. Yeah, I agree. But then, I mean, that might be something, again, not to say everyone needs to be tested for everything, but it's one of those, cause, you know, you don't necessarily want to give just iodine because you'd have to be giving other nutrients as well. Otherwise, the process, it'll, you know, like you want yeah. to making sure you're taking things like you, or that they're having enough selenium and having enough iodine, those sort of things. Selenium seems to be the magic one, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah. So, but beyond that, I think it's, um, I guess the way, the way any other tips is, I guess, starting depending on the person that you've got in front of you and where they're, where they're at with say their histamine intolerance or MCAS is just, um, so if someone a histamine intolerance is starting fairly simple, you're always starting with the diet and the approach that we sort of spoke about. Um, but if someone is probably more likely presenting with MCAS is just more, okay, this is the sort of thing that we're doing. These are all the different steps we're probably going to have to look at and sort of, and then, and cause it's a multifaceted approach, but it's definitely possible to help people feel a lot better, but it's, it's probably like, um, ulcerative colitis in that it's, um, there are general things that will help most people with it, but there's always going to be different tweaks to that depending on their particular triggers for it. So, yeah. um, so that's why you really need to be taking a broad approach to this. Cause as we sort of touched on in the beginning, histamine and mast cells, it's such, it's, it's a, it's not a simple topic because there's still so much, cause it has an effect positive and negative effect on the body depending yeah. on its level. But it's also yeah. evolving. I mean, I, yes. I can't thank you enough, Georgia, for, for taking us through just some of the issues today. I mean, I, this is, as we say, this is evolving. I mean, this, this paper yeah. that you sent me that I mm. only scanned through was 29th of March, 2019. Um, mm. And that's looking at the mast cell interaction with thyroid hormones. So yes. it'd be very interesting to revisit this with you in like another year or two years and see what's come out in the research. Yeah, for sure, yeah. It will mm. be interesting to see. But thank you so much for taking us through this. I mean, this is really important stuff. It's given me a new appreciation of what might be a linking pin between different disorders that we'd not thought separate, but we didn't know why they were so linked. We didn't know why it was. So this yeah. is one possible answer. It's very interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. And this is why clinic's interesting because it's never, <laughs> there's always something to learn. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And I thank you for your expertise and your care for your patients. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.